In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Philistines return the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites, but they include a rather strange guilt offering after the statue of their god Dagon is desecrated and after suffering tumors wherever the Ark was taken. The Israelites then offered sacrifices to God, but then some were struck dead for acting contrary to God's command. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Wednesday, May 3rd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. You know who I'd also like to thank? You. Those of you who tune in, those who generously support KFUO with your prayers and donations. We ended the share live event on Saturday with contributions totaling around $155,000. But it's not too late for you to be part of share this week. Your gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. You can visit kfuo.org and click on share that banner at the top of the page, or you can call Mary at 314-996-1518. That number again for Mary is 314-996-1518. Whether you're able to give or just pray or just join us, I'm just so thankful for your support. This morning, please join me, though, in welcoming my guest to help us divide and discern 1 Samuel chapter 6. And that's going to be the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Uh, pastor Mullet, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pastor. It's good to be back. Oh, it's great to have you on every time we do. I pray that things are going well for you. Uh, anything new since we last talked? I think it's been probably, what, about a month? Yeah, about a month. Um, things are going well. We we survived Holy Week and are uh, very much uh, embracing the joy of the Easter season. So, I don't know about for you, but for me, Easter is just a little bit slower. I mean, there's still a lot going on, a lot to plan for, but just after the busyness of Holy Week, it's it's nice to just relax and in the Lord's presence, and also, at least where we are here in Minnesota, things are warming up. I hope they are there for you in Indiana, too. We've been teased a little bit with some sunshine. Uh, it's been cold this week, but uh, we're getting back up into the sun and closer to the 70s this weekend, so we're looking forward to that as well. Oh, that's a blessing, no matter where you are. Well, good. Well, I'll tell you what, before we start into our text today, which is an interesting one, I want to invite you, as I always do, to start our time together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as you manifest your presence among your people in the Ark of the Covenant, and they rejoiced when you returned into their presence, so help us by word and spirit to rejoice likewise in your presence among us, in your word, in prayer, in the sacrament of the altar where we receive your Son's body and blood, and in the fellowship of believers that you give us one to another that we might build one another up in love. Bless us, we pray, by your presence among us, that in everything we think, do, and say, we might bring glory to your name, and by your grace, grow your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, do we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today's text follows, um, well, a, a, a battle that happened that we talked about yesterday, but that battle ended up with the Philistines capturing the Ark of God. 
And some interesting things happened to the Philistines, which I think is important for us to review because it's going to make, well, at least what they do today make a little more sense. Um, Brother, would you like to take us through the last chapter? Just give us a little bit of a, a recap of how God treated the Philistines as they were mistreating the Ark. Sure. The The battle itself, uh, as I recall, begins back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the short version of the battle is the Philistines defeat Israel. Uh, and they defeat Israel. Many Israelites die. And uh, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. It's also in chapter 4 that Eli, the priest, dies. Um, but chapter 5 really gives us the best context for what we're going to talk about today, where the Philistines... Now, um, how do I want to say this? Kind of take the ark around to their various cities one by one, and it doesn't go well for them. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that very much contributes to the reason that it keeps going around from city to city, is in each case, um, rather than blessings being brought by the presence of God in the ark of the covenant, uh, rather judgments and even curses, you might say, are brought down upon the unbelievers. Um, so the presence of God for the Philistines brings God's wrath upon them uh, for their sin and unbelief. And so we begin then in chapter six, um, kind of uh, the Philistines kind of gathering themselves together and saying, we have to get rid of this thing. We have to send it back. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I, I'm agree. I'm in agreement with you. They were, I think they were just dragging it from city to city to figure out, okay, you know, maybe this is just a coincidence. Uh, let's take it here and let them deal with whatever the problem is. Um, our guest last, uh, well, it was just yesterday, but our guest yesterday, we were talking about this, and one of the things that the Philistines incurred were tumors, or at least how we, we translate the word tumor. It, it really just kind of refers to like welts, and some interpreters have said that these tumors were uh, perhaps even hemorrhoids, some maybe a sexual disease, some uh, I think our guest made a great point that, well, they were evidently visible, whatever they were. So tumors might be the right word. Uh, but the point is, he brought up the obscure, not that he was supporting it, but the obscure theory that perhaps there was something uh, radioactive or nuclear in the uh, in the ark. Uh, some of the ancient alien <laughs> folks per give these ideas out. All kinds of different ways people try to extract from God his power and divinity. But the point is, we know it's God's work, but God was working in a very personal way, whether they were hemorrhoids or all over their bodies. These guys were getting tumors, and that's going to come into play in our text for this morning uh, in a very strange way. Uh, I tell you what, I think we just should go ahead and start to do a little reading. I'm only going to read the first three verses just to get us started, and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go from there. Here we go. Chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. The ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for their priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So in the last chapter, they'd already decided that they were going to return it to the Israelites. And so we're picking up with them figuring out, well, exactly how do we do that? 
And I, I, I illustrate these first four verses only because, or these first three verses, pardon me, only because it's interesting how they talk about the God of Israel. I've said it before, and I think it, it bears repeating, you know, these people believed in all the gods, you know, and, and the God of the Israelites, uh, because he's the only real God, uh, is so powerful to them. And we see this time and again with the Egyptians and here and other places. Uh, that just stood out to me. But take us through just these first three verses. What's going through the mind of the Philistines? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They even use, and I love the way that you read it, right? You insert Yahweh, where we have in, in English, if we just said it out loud, we would say the Lord. But in print, it's all capitals Lord, right? Which indicates that covenant name of God under that in the Hebrew, that name Yahweh. And even the Philistines use that name. They recognize who this is. I think you're right to also bring up the Egyptians. There are a ton of parallels in this chapter uh, that we can kind of find between the Philistines and the Egyptians. And even, I think, um, in the bigger context, we might even start to see some parallels between Samuel and Joshua. But I mm. don't have Samuel specifically in this chapter, so I'll leave that for the next guy. Um <laughs> When we see the Ark of the Lord in the country of the Philistines for seven months, I, I try not to do a whole lot with numerology, but again, that number seven shows up over and over and over in the scriptures, and we do get this sense of completeness uh, whenever there's a seven, a fullness or a perfection, even a fulfillment. And so the time that the Ark was meant to spend in the land of the Philistines has come to its end. The fullness of time has come, if you will. And verse two is fascinating to me. The Philistines call for the priests and the diviners and ask them what they're supposed to do. And I think we can brush over this, but these are priests and diviners of the Philistines. These are what we would refer to as pagan priests and diviners, right? As you said, they believed in the whole multitude of gods. Uh, Yahweh, they recognized as one among many to whom they might pray or offer sacrifices. In the previous chapter, we saw Dagon was one of their main ones, right? He comes up quite a bit. Uh, but what, what are we going to do with this? This Ark of Yahweh, he's clearly bringing this judgment, these curses, these tumors upon us, whatever the tumors are. And uh, we have to send it back so that this will stop. And how do we do that? And the priests, whether they really mean to or not, they grab onto a very, a very uh, scriptural idea of returning it with a guilt offering. Now, the guilt offering that they suggest in the coming verses is not um, particularly scriptural. Um, but the idea even of a guilt offering is kind of an interesting thing that they work in there. And we'll see some more of that where even through these unbelieving priests and diviners, God is working actually some pretty horrible hints for us with eyes of faith to see that he is the one really at work here. Oh, precisely. Absolutely. You know, they, they cannot deny the power of the God of the Israelites. And if we recall from yesterday, you know, he caused their statue to basically fall down prostrate before him. Um, and we, we see that God, of course, we know that there's only one true God. Their God is nothing. Uh, how, how, why it takes them so long, or I guess they never really do to understand that it's, it's sort of humorous, but God is, is striking them with these tumors. They're wanting to get rid of it. They're sending it back and they're sending it back with a guilt offering. You illustrated that. Let's read verses four 
through six get an idea of what they think will appease the God of the Israelites. Here we go. And they said to their priests, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now, we're going to pause there. The priest keeps going, but um, lots to dig into here. But I have to admit, the thing that stands out, maybe it's a little puerile, but five golden tumors they're supposed to make. It really does make us want to know, or at least me want to know, what exactly is the shape of what they're making? I mean, you know, it it just seems very so strange. Golden, uh, golden tumors, but then also five golden mice, which we briefly mentioned yesterday, might suggest that mice had a role in spreading this disease. Perhaps God used them to spread something like the like the plague. But anyway, I'd like to hear your take. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's the King James here that uh, without being too graphic, I'm pretty sure in the King James, these are five golden hemorrhoids. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's maybe I'll just leave it at that, shall we? Um, sure. But I think you're right. I think the mice um, kind of indicate that whatever this thing is, I mean, this is called to mind actually for many different commentators on these verses, um, a suggestion that this is something uh like the plague that spread in Europe, mostly via rats. Um, and and so that's kind of the suggestion here. We don't really get it coming right out and saying anything about the mice up until this point. We just kind of have to infer backwards that they had some something to do with it. Um, and five of each, uh, according to the number of the lords, we're going to find out later in this chapter that there were five cities uh, that are represented here. Now, not all five of them are represented in chapter five as the Ark is making its little tour of the country. Um, but I think we can probably infer, I don't think it would be wrong to infer that it, the Ark may indeed have stopped at all five of these cities that will be named later, as I said. Um, so you must make these images um, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand. And we see this... Um, in a, in a couple different things. I mean, we have images being made of things out of gold for good reasons and for bad reasons, right? Statue of Dagon almost certainly matches up a little bit here. Um, but we can think likewise in a positive sense, perhaps of the bronze serpent and in a negative sense of the golden calf. Um, and those were made of gold, um, uh, the bronze, obviously the bronze. But um, I think the other thing that we can see here is this recognition by the priests and the diviners. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. And they get it. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptian and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? They see the parallels here between the presence of God in the land of the Philistines and the presence of God in Egypt. Uh, just like the magicians and diviners of Pharaoh recognized the finger of Yahweh uh, so many years ago. And 
uh, just now as the Israelites were let go out of Egypt. Um, now the ark of the God of Israel is being let go and almost almost cast out in very much the same way that Pharaoh almost cast out the Israelites. Please go, just go, leave mm -hmm. and take these plagues away from us. And, and we're kind of seeing the same thing here. Um, he, the God of Israel, dealt severely with them in Egypt and they sent the people away. Yeah, it, you know what I think is amazing about this too is not only are they making the connections, and I think you're spot on. They're they're like get rid of these people. That's the Egyptians that are causing us this trouble, and now we're having get rid of this ark that's causing us trouble. But I also think it's important that we note that they know the history. I mean, they they don't know it perfectly. You know, there's some other places. I, I don't know if it's in our text, but where they talk about the their gods. But still, the point is the people around Israel tend to know the history better than the Israelites sometimes, or at the very least respect the history <laughs> more than the Israelites. So even you almost hope the Israelites don't know the history because if the people that are surrounding them are like, their God's powerful and look what he can do. Let's, let's honor him. And the Israelites are going around, not listening to him, taking for granted that they're the chosen people and they get punished for it time and again. Yeah, it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. Yeah, I think that's right on. I mean, you see that um, in even in Joshua, for example, um, with the conquest of the promised land and this kind of questioning of like, what what kind of God would you be? I mean, they know about you. What kind of name are you making for yourself that, you know, and it's kind of leveraged, shall we say, um, in different ways throughout the Old Testament. But you know, the God of Israel, our God, Yahweh, he has a reputation. Uh, the word gets out when significant things happen like that. And um, again, mostly surrounded by uh, these pagan nations that worship the whole multitude of gods or things that they think are a multitude of gods. Um, but Yahweh always seems to have a place among them. They always, they always know about him even if they don't know him in the sense of, of a faithful relationship, uh, they definitely know who he is. Now, I think that brings up an excellent point. In my Wednesday morning Bible study at my congregation, we're currently going through the Augsburg Confession, and we've just now settled into the Article 20 on good works. And in that article, it talks about the differences of faith, you know, the, the fact that true saving faith is not intellectual, but rather a faith that acknowledges that God exists, but also puts your faith, hope, and trust in the one true God. And here we see that distinction. They know about Yahweh, just knowing or even believing that God is real and exists, or even knowing who he is, doesn't mean you know him as he wants to be known and trust and put your hope in him. And I think that's what we see here too, uh, an example of the difference between intellectual faith and obviously true saving faith. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the New Testament classic example, right? Even the demons know who Jesus is. Right. Um, exactly. You know, and I and I think we see that same idea here. Yeah, that's a great connection. Well, now let's read seven through nine because, well, the the priests and they're not done talking to uh, to the folks here, the diviners. Here they go. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. 
and take the ark of Yahweh and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Okay, what stands out to me first off, and it's a very small point, but way up in verse 3 it says, they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. And my first read-through, I highlighted that thinking, wait a minute, the ark isn't empty. So, like, are all the things taken out of it? And, of course, I knew about the the tumors coming up, the, the guilt offering, and I thought, did they put them in the ark? But then the, my question is answered here with verse 8. They're putting the offering in a box at its side. So I just, I, if anybody else had had the same thought while reading through it, I wanted to illustrate that. Uh, but there's a lot more in here. Uh, take it away, brother. Yeah, I think probably it's good that they uh, put them in a box by the side. I don't think trying to put <laughs> good the uh, golden tumors and mice inside the ark would have ended well for them. Um, but again, I think this is that's just one little detail that shows just how much God is at work here, even through these unbelieving priests and diviners. And I mean, my first instinct reading verse seven is Palm Sunday. Uh, a new cart, two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, just like the donkey on which no one has ever sat, and so on. Um, and I think it, it, even if you do nothing with that little parallel uh, in that detail there, then remember that what's about to happen is the presence of God is about to go forth and enter in among God's people again. Um, if you take nothing else from that little parallel, take that. I think on a more practical level, what the priests and diviners are doing here is is very much putting God to the test, so to speak, um, with mm -hmm. two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. Well, the fact that they're milk cows, they wouldn't probably normally be the ones pulling the cart in the first place. Right. Uh, so there's never been a yoke and take their calves away from them. So now you have two cows that are probably not used to pulling things, have never had a yoke on them, and you take their babies away. Now, practically speaking, those cows are not going to want to just walk in a straight line directly to Beth Shemesh. Ooh. I, I, you know what? I just, I'm, just to interject, I see where you're going with this. I, I hadn't, this hadn't occurred to me. So anyway, please go. I just want to jump in and say, yeah, I like this train of thought. Go ahead. It, so practically speaking, right, those cows are not going to want to just go straight to where God wants them to go, right? If left to their own devices, they're going to want to wander around and find their calves. Um, and in fact, they go out, I think in a few verses, I think they go out um, lowing as they went. Yeah. I mean, they're looking for their calves, right? And so this for the priests and diviners of the Philistines is going to be the sign. Like we recognize these cows have no business walking in a straight line straight to Beth Shemesh. And so if they do, then we'll know. Um, I don't think they convert afterwards, but, you know, um, but the, it is confirmed by, frankly, I mean, from a human perspective, kind of a miraculous sign. Um, these cows missing their babies would, would not just pull the thing in a calm and collected manner in a straight line all the way to Beth Shemesh. Um, but anyway, we'll get there. Um, if it goes... Well, I want to interject. Oh. I want to interject about that point, though, because we do know that they do, but or we're going to know in a minute. 
But I also wonder if they are not stacking the deck against it happening. Like, they, as you pointed out, they, they get cows who aren't used to pulling things. They make them upset so that typically they would be wandering around looking for their cow calves. And so it's almost like possibility that not only are they putting the Lord to the test, which we know they are, they flat out say they are, but perhaps they're stacking the deck, putting their thumb on the scale so that it will just wander around and then they can claim, look, see, the God of Israel is nothing. It, it was just a coincidence. I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe they want that result. There might be something to that. I'm kind of reminded, um, although in this case it was a faithful man doing a similar thing, where Elijah comes up against the prophets of Baal and continues to oh, stack sure. the deck against Yahweh from a human perspective, right? You fill the trench with water and you douse everything with water and it's still completely consumed by fire. Um, I, I mean, kind of thematically, that kind of reminds me, mm -hmm. or I'm kind of reminded of that by this, where, you know, every conceivable thing that could work against the Ark going to Beth Shemesh is going to be enacted here. And yet, right, as we know, or as we're about to hear again, it does, it goes straight straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, which is really remarkable, um, practically speaking. Well, I tell you what, we are going to hear about that, but I think we should probably take a break first. <laughs> that way we can have a little suspense, even though we've kind of already given it away. <laughs> but folks, <laughs> do not go anywhere. In just a few minutes when we return, we are going to keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 6. See you on the other side of the break. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. I'm grateful that you've joined us this morning, whether you're coming to us on the air or live or on demand at KFUO or as a podcast or using the KFUO app. I'm just happy you're here. And just another reminder, you can still be a part of share this week. Head on over to kfuo.org, click on the share banner at the top of the page. You can give online. You can also call Mary at 314-996-1518. Contributions in any amount are greatly appreciated. Uh, you can also benefit by certain levels of tiers of giving. They'll send the gift your way. But at the same time, if you're unable to give, 
you, we would appreciate your prayers as much as anything. And just thank you for your listenership and for supporting KFUO. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the program, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right. And you can also find me on Facebook. Drop by. Say hello. All right, Pastor Mullet. Before the break, we were just getting to the to the turn on whether or not the way in which they are testing the God of the Israelites, well, what does it tell them? And here's what we're going to find out in verses 10 through, uh, let's say, 16. Here we go. So the men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. All right, pausing there. So it went straight, which, of course, we knew it would. But it is interesting that Yahweh, the one true God, chose to... I guess, reveal this to them in the way that they had dictated. You've, you already mentioned putting the Lord to the test. This isn't something that we should try, right, Pastor? We shouldn't be going out there setting up tests to see if God's going to give us certain answers. I wouldn't personally recommend it, no. Um, <laughs> it, only, and, and if for no other reason, then, then God doesn't promise to work that way. Um, what we see, and in fact, I think the last time I was on, we talked a little bit about Gideon and the fleece um, and oh, that right. test that he kind of set before God. And we do see these things happen at various points in the scriptures. Um, but for us as Christians, God, I mean, I think reveals himself to us in ways that that we don't need to put him to the test. Um, the I think the reason we see these various tests and signs, particularly in the Old Testament, is that God has now revealed himself to us in a different way, a new way uh, than he had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all they had was the prophetic word. Um, they had the sacrifices, they had the tabernacle and the tent and eventually the temple and so on. We have a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, right? We have a new way to receive him. Uh, and I think I think that's an important kind of reminder for us that when we when we seek to put God to the test, simply to return to what He has promised and where He has promised to be, He gives us signs, things that we can actually look at and know according to His promises that He is there for us. Um, so, but anyway, as you said, they go straight, uh, straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway. 
uh, lowing as they went. Again, I think that probably indicates they're looking for their calves, even as the Lord is driving them precisely where he wants them to be, because they turn neither to the right nor to the left. Uh, and of course, the lords of the Philistines are following them to make sure, uh, to, kind of, to kind of verify the sign. Um, and it, it's kind of a throwaway detail in verse 16. When they saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. They, they, you know, they went home <laughs> defeated, frankly. Um, they kind of watched it happen and realized, wow, you know, the God of the Israelites, it's, uh, he's, he's the real deal. Uh, his judgment really was upon us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they definitely got the answer that if, if I'm right in that they were trying to stack it against it, God shows that he was behind it according to their own test. Even if they were, as you said, putting the Lord to the test to the most possible way, you know, pour, pouring all the water around, as we talked about later, or I mean earlier, then, then God shows his power. Regardless, even if they, and this is the funny thing, even if the calves, or the cows rather, pardon me, had gone wandering all around left and right uh, according to against according to their test god still would have been behind it so as you said there's no guarantee that they would have gotten the Im the information that they wanted but regardless what they discerned was true yahweh was truly behind this and he see and they see the people celebrating the return of the of the cart of the um well the ark of course and I do like how as soon as it rolls in, um, they make use of every part of it, right? They, the Levites come, which is only proper, and they take down the ark, and then they bust up the cart and then sacrifice the cows. Um, I think that, though, might come back to bite them a little bit. Let's read a little it, bit more. Oh, go ahead, though. Pardon me. Go ahead. Yeah, well, this is another place, I think— um, where you see God's hand, even in the details, right? Um, why else? I mean, we didn't mention this before, but now here we get another reason for the milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, right? Even if these are used in the field, if a yoke has never come upon them, that means they're probably young, uh, maybe perhaps about a year old, if I might be so bold as to suggest. Um, these are animals that are fit for sacrificing. If you look at, um, oh, it's in Numbers chapter 19, I think, um, that we kind of see this description of this is because only certain animals can be sacrificed according to the law. And lo and behold, here comes the Ark of the Covenant carried by, or rather pulled by, two animals that just so happen to be the correct kind of animals for the sacrifice. Um, so not only is this then uh, the ark returning and and they split the wood and they offer the cows but they're even doing so according to the word of the lord so you can see god's hand even all the way back in those priests and diviners in choosing precisely what they choose for this sign god's going to use all of it in in his time he is I, I i hate to but i have to throw in one tiny little wrench though they're cows right so according to leviticus 1 3 they have to be a male a year old. So I wonder if that is significant in any way. Hmm. You can take my wrench and do what you want with it. It's fine. You can throw it back at That's me. That's fine. <laughs> we'll, That's fine. We'll keep, we'll keep reading. But, but you're, I think you're, I really do. I love the imagery that you're putting out there. Um, but I also think we can build on the imagery that you've given, though, because even though all the things are there for sacrifice, 
it still is kind of an incomplete sacrifice because there's it's see what we're going to find out is in some ways the Philistines are treating God with more respect than the Israelites. They're treating his ark now <laughs> with more respect than what's going to happen next. Uh, but we have to get a few more verses in. This is going to be 17, ooh, just 17 and 18. Here we go. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the Ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. I stop there only because it's just so neat um, that these places are preserved. So whenever Samuel's being written, it's obviously well after these events have taken place, and they can point to, hey, guys, you know that big rock there? That, that's why we talk about this. That's the altar where they did this. I mean, I think those things are, are always really fascinating in the Bible. With such a transient culture that we live in now, everything's digital. It makes you wonder what's going to be left to be uh, physical reminders of, of anything, much less the, the activity of God in our midst. That's a really interesting point. You know, we see this idea, of course, most of them are stones, um, but that happens in Genesis in a few different places. It happens with the 12 memorial stones uh, when Joshua and the Israelites cross the Jordan into the promised land, 12 both in the river itself and then 12 uh, stacked up on the other side, whatever exactly that means. Um, but it, the phrase over and over, right, is to this day, like you can still go and see it. If you don't believe us, go and check it out and you can actually see where this very thing happened. And you see this too throughout the scriptures with the various uh, place names that things are given based on what happened there or who was there or what have you. I think this is one of the reasons, um, even if we don't recognize it as such, uh, or if it's even kind of subconscious, I think this is one of the reasons that trips to the Holy Land are so appealing. And it's, it's a helpful reminder for us, even if we're unable to go to the Holy Land, or even if all we're able to do is, is you know, see the photographs or, or the videos or what have you. Um, it's an important reminder for us that God works in time, in space, and even more than that, comes into it with us. Um, you know, the, this is why the incarnation of Jesus is so central to our faith, that we have an incarnate God who not only works in human time and space, but I mean, apart from creating time and space itself, of course, but also puts himself into it, right? Subjects himself to it, becomes one of us. Uh, and this idea that, that all these things happened in an actual place, in an actual time. That's why we mention Pontius Pilate in the creeds. Uh, it puts a timestamp on it. You can verify this historically. We don't believe in something made up and ethereal and uh, just kind of floating out there for us to grab onto by faith. We believe in a real historical Jesus with a real historical verifiable sequence of events that lead to his death and resurrection and so our salvation. Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. And, and I just I love that. I love that, you know, we can point to our faith and the tenets of our faith and say, you know, yes, faith is required. It's the things not seen, etc. 
but this is a faith based on real history, real people, real activities. And, and that's, of course, what they did, too. And they use these things to pass down the faith to their children, which is essentially what's happening here in our text, right? Hey, go down there. Look at it. Remember it. But now we're going to move on with verses 19 through, oh, let's just do through 21, I think. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. <laughs> All right, so um, I, I, only, I only find this a little bit humorous. Obviously, God's judgment is being being displayed here and that's a somber event but now because of what's happened they're looking to get rid of the thing too and it's always yeah it just seems like we're always are blaming the wrong things instead of them recognizing there's improper treatment in worship they're thinking the thing itself is the problem we got to get rid of it uh but there's there's some other things to talk about here too but take us through this you know what's your perspective oh there's so much going on in here um I'm reminded, and if I if I might just maybe with my tongue a little bit in my cheek, throw your wrench back at you. Um, here we go. I think, I think what we're thinking of here, um, and what I was thinking of in Numbers 19 is the red heifer on which no yoke has been laid. Um, oh, got it. And so that with it, and I think that does actually uh, have something to do with it here because it's same chapter that the priests are given very specific instructions for how they are to consecrate themselves before the sacrifices are made. And I think that is really the issue here. I think, um, and maybe in the context of, of first Samuel, when we remember that Eli's house has been, um, kind of uh, disowned, I guess, um, or even desecrated, if you will, because of the wickedness of Eli's sons, if there is some impression here, that we don't need the priesthood anymore, that God has kind of gotten rid of that system. Um, uh, you know, the old rules of how to consecrate yourself and make a sacrifice and so on. I don't know. I think that might be in people's minds here. And so we can just go up to the ark. We can just do what we need to do. I mean, they're out in the field. They're working, right? They would need to cleanse themselves um, before making sacrifices. And we don't get any indication that they did that. I think that's probably behind uh, the Lord striking them down. Um well, absolutely. And, I want to interject. Be, that. Well, I want to interject because I think that's precisely uh, it, because it makes so much sense. And I'm glad that you have thrown the wrench back, because honestly, that was a confusion for me, because I love the imagery that you gave. And now it really does make it a lot more understandable and complete, because there is a, as you're saying, a purification issue, or there's something, let me rephrase that. There's an issue behind here that's making them improperly treating it making them not worthy to do what they're doing. They're going to be disobeying what God has already instructed them to do. And the red heifer, per precisely, if you look at that text, it is about purification. And that's really what's going on. It's the, the ark has been treated almost better by once they were, you know, once they were, uh, once they were disciplined for it, but better, better by their enemies. And now here they come and they kind of do some of the right things, but then they're, they're, looking at least some of them are looking inside the ark and i say inside because i mean just to look upon it 
seems a little extreme, although I will have to say, again, now we're looking at numbers four, the law calls for the ark to be shielded from view. Um, we're told that whenever the tabernacle is, I'm sorry, whenever uh, the ark is outside the tabernacle, it's to be covered with three layers of cloth and le leather. So there's a lot, but but again, it came to them that way. So there's a lot of complicating factors here, but obviously the Lord is just in what he's doing. Yeah, it's hard to know for sure um, whether we're just looking at it. I, I would guess it's probably a little bit more than that. Um, they're sure. probably, I think you're probably right. I think they're probably looking into it, um, going frankly further than they have been given to go, so to speak. Um, so he strikes down the 70 again, not, um, I try not to go too far down the numerology route, but mm -hmm. 70 is a number that comes up quite a bit. Um, even if all we look at is, uh, the 70 years in Babylon that will come, you know, hundreds of years from this point, um, there is a thing about the number 70 and, uh, you know, reflected even if you follow the one-year lectionary reflected in those three uh, Sundays before Ash Wednesday with funny Latin names um, called Jesumatide, right? That pre-Lent season that expands it to the 70. But anyway, um, it's, it's what is 70. It's seven times 10. And seven, as we already said, is that number of completeness, that number of fulfillment, and 10, most especially the number of the commandments and the number of the plagues. This is to do with God's law. Striking down 70 is the fullness of God's law, the fullness of his judgment upon them for this, for this um, lack of consecration or lack of holiness. But I think in the bigger if we're thinking a little bit bigger picture, you started to hint at this a couple minutes ago, and I think it's a point worth making that they they start to blame the ark. They start to blame God mm -hmm. for all of this. Um, now, I think I think um, I think we're going just a little bit into chapter seven, and we'll get we'll get a little hint here that they've they've got it figured back out, and they do return in faith, but. I mean, this is this has been the nature of the beast from the beginning, right? What is the very first thing that Eve does? Eve blames the snake, and then, I mean, right? And and even Adam before that, right? When we address Adam, what is this that has happened? And he blames the woman, and not just the woman, but the woman that you gave me, God. It's you know, we, we have such a tendency to do that, to blame God or to blame our circumstances and so on. And do those things play a role in our suffering and in our sins that we commit? Yes, they do. But this tendency to um, ignore personal agency is, I think, kind of a, a trend, if you will, not only in the scriptures, but in our own day as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that is incredibly important. And we see here that they I always think of that Genesis passage, though, and I just can't—there's so much blame going around. Eve blames the serpent, you know, and then Adam blames the woman, and then, of course, he blames God, right? This woman you gave to be with me. And then here they are blaming the thing that God has put them in their midst. And, and of course, it is important, and God has established rules and regulations around it, but they're so blinded to the fact that it's not— the object, well, I, I, they're not worshiping the ark, but I got to be careful here. But it's not, it's not the object of worship that is God. It's their means by which they are worshiping, or even more clearly, just it's their disobedience. 
and we, even when we were back talking about, well, what exactly did they do that caused God to uh, strike them down? I think we have to remember that we're not like on the, we're not the defense attorneys for the people here. <laughs> God is always right, no matter what he does. So if we're trying to discern anything, it's to discern what in our behavior is contrary to God's will and correct that as opposed to try to figure out, well, was God justified in that? Did they do enough bad things for that to happen? It doesn't matter. Of course they did, because God's the one who rendered the judgment. Yeah, that's an important um, that's an important reminder for us as Christians that you know God's big picture, shall we say, is a lot bigger than ours. And um, I think what we see here um, in the first bit of of chapter seven, this lament um, is is an important reminder for us as well in in how we respond to suffering and how we respond to tragedy, as we see here when he strikes down the seventy. Um, for for whatever the particular reason might be, I think at the very least we're we're on the right track with what we're talking about for the reason behind it. Uh, particularly when they say this holy God, um, and they they use that particular word. I think another kind of indication that that's what's going on here. Um, but you know, in the midst of all of that, um, eventually, like I said, and we we throw blame this way and that way and whatever else. Um, and yet, like I said, in, in chapter 7, verse 2, um, it, which concludes with all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, um, that does indicate a faithful response. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Let's read the rest of this, um, this account, which actually gets us two verses into chapter 7. So the Philistines have returned the ark, they say, and they're calling up to Kiriath-Jerim saying, hey, take this from us. But I think you're right. It's, it's more generous to say that they were wanting, now that they've been smited by their inaction or their improper action, they want to, uh, they want to do it right. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of Yahweh. And from that day, the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. Uh, two things before the show comes to an end, and one is, I get why didn't they take it to Shiloh? And two, what does it mean that they lamented? Sure. So the short version of Shiloh is uh, because Shiloh has been desecrated by the sons of Eli, um, which, you know, uh, apparently that means the, the whole thing has sort of been, again, disowned isn't quite the right word, but sort of. Um, and in fact, the desecration of Shiloh as a concept does show up in other places in the scriptures. It's in the Psalms uh, somewhere. And that's um, kind of a Luther thing to say. It's in the Psalms somewhere. It's in Isaiah somewhere. Um, just read the whole thing. Um, but more importantly, I think this, this concept of lament, this is also all over in the Psalms. And frankly, this is something I think we as Christians can do a lot more with. Um, because what, what lamenting ultimately does, if you read the Psalms of lament and any place you go online to, to look up, give me a list of the Psalms of lament. We, we don't perfectly agree on which ones are Psalms of lament and which ones aren't, but you'll get a general feel for it. And what lament really is, is crying out to God in the midst of suffering, acknowledging your own sinfulness 
And more importantly, I think, acknowledging that God is the one who not only has allowed whatever suffering this is to befall you, but most important of all, acknowledging that he's the one who can deliver you from it. Um, we're often so hesitant, even as Christians, in the midst of our earthly suffering, to get angry with God, and we're afraid to call to him, and we're afraid to uh, even suggest that what we're going through is wrong. And I think the, the big influence from our individualistic culture that we find ourselves in, and even, unfortunately, lots of popular Christianity nowadays is very much individualized and just believe harder and this will go away from you. I think lamenting and even getting angry with God and, and venting your frustration to him, if you will, is one of the most faithful things you can do in the midst of hardship because it acknowledges, again, you, God, are the one who's in control, and you, God, are the one who can deliver me from this. And, you know, lamenting ultimately puts the ball back in God's court, so to speak. You have promised good things for your people, so deliver me from this. And then trusting that God does deliver you by word and sacrament to forgive your sins. And ultimately, whether that suffering is taken from you on this side of heaven or on the other side that God has in Christ indeed worked your deliverance from sin and every evil. Beautifully put. I love it. Thank you so much, brother. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Brother, I can't wait to have you on again. Thanks, Pastor Boo. It's always fun. Folks, thank you, too, for tuning in. I just want to let you know one more time that it's not too late for you to be a part of THON. You can give a gift of any amount by visiting kfuo.org and clicking on the share banner. You can also call Mary at 314-996-1518. And also, I will let you know that we are going to be back tomorrow, as always. And tomorrow, well, Samuel tells the Israelites to stop worshiping idols and follow God only, and that if they do, that God would rescue them from the Philistines. Well, the Israels agree. They meet at Mizpah to fast and admit their sins, and the Philistines come to attack them there, but God thunders against their enemy, once again gives Israel the victory. Samuel sets up a stone called Ebenezer to commemorate God's victory. You probably have said that in a hymn or two. And the Philistines stop invading Israel for a little while, and Samuel judges Israel faithfully all his days. So, until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.